Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Today's visitor to the island is a very familiar name. For many years, he was RTE's political correspondent. He was Northern Editor, presenter of Morning Ireland when it began, and Head of News at Century Radio. It's a pleasure to welcome David Davenpower. And David, while that's a very distinguished introduction, I'd like to drag you down at the beginning by referring to an article I read you wrote where you almost your career almost came to a in a very early end by taking a Friday off. It certainly did. I was working for the Irish Medical Times. I was just out of college, and I'd uh, blagged my way into a job there because my late father had been friendly with the mercurial boss of that outfit, Johnny O'Connell, who was later a TD and Count Corla and briefly Minister for Health. But he was a tricky customer to deal with. Uh, and um, I was there not very long. And the paper generally went away on a Tuesday, I think, or a Wednesday. So Friday was a quiet day. A friend of mine was getting married and I basically took the day off and I, I didn't clear it with mission control. Mm. So uh, I came in on the Monday and everybody was very silent. Uh, there wasn't a word spoken and I knew something was up and I was summoned into the office and there was rant, rave, rant, rave. Now, at this stage, the company was owned by Haymarket, a huge London publishing company. And I was told that London had heard that I had uh, taken the day off on Friday and London was taking a very dim view of this. And Dr. O'Connell was more in sorrow than in anger. I knew your father well to have to do this, but you've got to go. Not my, It's not my decision, but London. Michael Heseltine, of course, was then the boss of of Haymarket. I very much doubt if uh, Michael Heseltine knew about me going to Brian Sweeney's wedding, but there you are. So uh, not for the first time, uh, Maureen Brown, the redoubtable editor of the Irish Medical Times, and to this day a great friend, smoothed the waters after I uh, emerged crestfallen, having lost my job after six weeks, as I thought. Uh, she said, a letter has to be written now. So a letter of apology was written and the clouds parted and the sun began to shine. And Dr. O'Connell uh, summoned me into the office again at five o'clock and said that London had relented <laughs> and uh, I could, in fact, resume my duties. But it um, it was a salutary lesson for a young fellow who just started a job that you can't really play fast and loose, even if you think that you're going to get away with it. Yeah. That was the beginning of your Anglo-Irish relations coverage, was it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Your first musical choice, David, is from your your youth, rock and roll, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, when I was growing up, I was pally with a lot of people who went on uh, to forge a career in music. This is when I was in school in uh, Gonzaga in Dublin. One of my great friends who sadly died last year was Bernard Tormey, Bernie Tormey, as he styled himself. He went on to forge a great career as a rock musician. He played with Ozzy Osbourne, Ian Gillen. He had his own band, and then sadly he... Uh, he became ill and died last year, but he was a great friend growing up. And of course, we'd listen to all the all the latest vinyl discs and we were into the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, of course, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. But when we heard Jimi Hendrix for the first time, it was it was an electrifying experience. And, uh, you know, I remember at the time Purple Haze being a particular favourite and uh, 
Uh, you'd hear it in the scratchy record players, the uh, the absolutely distinctive vinyl sound. But uh, it still brings me back to those days uh, in the sixties in Dublin and listening to uh, listening to discs uh, in 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 Bernard Tormey's bedroom or in in my room uh, in South Circular Road where I lived. It uh, it does bring me back. But Jimi Hendrix then is now a fantastic musician and utterly utterly uh, mercurial figure. And while Bernard was a musician, did you play as well? I didn't. I was one of these onlookers uh, who uh, unfortunately never picked up a, an instrument uh, at any time. You know, it was a kind of a... I don't what were your interests as, as in those school years? Oh, music, very much yeah. music. Uh, music and uh, laterally of cars, funny enough. But uh, we oh we would spend hours just listening to John Mayall and dissecting the, you know, the guitar solos and... And charting the course of various various musicians, I mentioned Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, all the various bands that he played in before he became a superstar. And you know, um, it, it there wasn't a lot else to do, Des, in those days. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One. That's Purple Haze and Jimi Hendrix, the choice of today's guest, former political correspondent David Davenport. Now, your career, obviously was to go on and be very successful. You were presenter of Morning Ireland when it began. 1984, yeah. Morning Ireland got onto a, off to a rocky start because uh, the powers that be in RTE weren't very keen on it. Uh, as you know, to be preceded by, I think, Mike, Mike Murphy, Murphy. Mike Murphy playing discs. The, the chairman of the authority at the time was, was Fred O'Donovan, whose own background was obviously in light entertainment. He had recording studios and... He was very, very dubious about the idea of having uh, news at that time in the morning. So to say that RTE was lukewarm about Morning Ireland would have been an understatement. And it took a great effort on the part of the news bosses of the day to get it over the line. And it must be said, you know, there wasn't much in the way of resources. There hadn't ever been current affairs at that time of the morning. There were no mobile phones. Uh, There was a, a fairly skimpy contacts book. So contacting people at that time of the morning was uh, always problematical and we used occasionally to rely on taxi firms to go around and, you know, put letters under people's doors at six in the morning. Uh, I remember one uh, occasion in which there was uh, one of the many crises in the VHI at the time, which was staggering along financially, limping along financially. And uh, there was a story in the papers that morning that, you know, caught us by surprise. We were blindsided. uh, VHI was about to collapse. So we had to get in touch with the the boss of the VHI at the time, a very nice man. But unfortunately, he had quite a commonplace name, Tom Ryan. He wasn't in our contacts book, so there was nothing for it, only to ring all the Tom Ryans in the phone book at uh, six in the morning. (laughs) So we got reactions uh, varying from sort of furious to uh, uh, bewildered. I, I, I made a couple of the calls myself and I remember ringing this lady and the lady answers the phone and I say, hello, I'm very sorry. Uh, this is David Davenport from, from RTE. Uh, we're just wondering if that's the right number for Tom Ryan of the VHI. So this very sleepy uh, voice says, Tom, Tom, it's RTE on the phone. Do we have a VHI policy? <laughs> <laughs> so I put the phone down fairly smartly after that. <laughs> So it yeah. was, um, it, look, it was a rocky start, but, you know, uh, on a sombre note, uh, um, Sean O'Morgan, the filmmaker, uh, uh, I met him uh, around that time and we were chatting and Morning Ireland was struggling a bit, really, because it didn't know whether it was fish or flesh. And there were theatre reviews, which didn't really sit very well. And news was thin on the ground. 
And Charlotte Morgan said, you know, what you need is a really big news story to establish, establish you as a programme, otherwise you'd be floundering. And a dreadful thing happened, as you know, the, the Eastbourne air disaster, where all, six of our journalistic colleagues lost their lives. And that, of course, happened, whatever time it was, just the night before, and it was breaking the following morning. And um, it's I, I worked on that as a junior reporter. Here well, you, rem- you, you remember what yeah, it was like. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a dreadful tragedy and, you know, everybody was shocked because we knew people involved. Uh, But I always thought that there was, in a sense, it kind of uh, gave Morning Ireland roots and established the programme in the national consciousness. It's it's I I, I don't mean it in a callous way and I say it with all respect to the people, the families of the people who lost their lives. Kevin Warren, John Feeney. That's right. That's right. We knew them all. Yeah. A horrific story, and the and the program, of course, went on to become. It did. It became very firmly established yeah. then. Yourself uh, and David Hanley were the were the faces. Yes, of it. well, Han- David Hanley was the voice of it because he had the voice and he had the presence, and I think that he was uh, a a very um, uh, important element in in establishing the program because people uh, people associated it with David Hanley with the with the voice, yeah. and uh, of course he soldiered on for many more years in front of the microphone than I did. Um, it was pretty punishing in those days because the, the the staffing levels were lower than they are now, and you you basically did it was basically five days if I remember correctly, and you know getting up at uh, half four or five in the morning. Uh, it's much more civilized now, and it's much better resourced. Yeah, it's it. You went in a different direction then after that. You and you became head of news at the fledgling Century Radio. I did indeed for my sins. Was that nineteen nineteen eighty nine? Oliver Barry lured me away from 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 RTE. <laughs> to say that Century Radio was a roller coaster ride is a bit of a, uh, an underestimate. It, it, terrific fun is the first thing to say. We assembled an amazing team of journalists and presenters. We had Richard Crowley, we had Carol Coleman, who went on to be RTE's uh, North American yeah. Washington correspondent. Paddy Clancy, the legendary um, uh, uh, journalist, uh, who was one of the news editors. Um, we had fantastic fun. And I think we gave RTE a bit of a run for its money. You know, the station was hugely undercapitalized. The actual audience figures, uh, when it it finally collapsed, were not bad, you know. Mm. Uh, But it had just burned through so much money. Uh, The promoters, Oliver Barry and uh, James Stafford, had completely underestimated the uh, capital that was needed to to, to get a a national radio station off the ground. Uh, The signal was very poor. And that uh, certainly uh, browned off the advertisers. Yeah, and that, I think, was a killer blow at the outset. Did you find it a very we- wearing time, the pressure of will we survive, etc.? Uh, I, I did, but I, I found most wearing the lack of... There, there was a namelessness about the way the station was run, I'm sorry to have to say. I was part of the management committee. And, you know, very, very quickly the station became... The management became transfixed by the scale of the financial problems. And um, like I remember management meetings going on for eight, nine hours, which is, you know, incredible, really, when you think about it. You, you then moved into another very significant job as, as the northern editor for RTE. That was, what, 1992. It, it was a tough time because, um, well, I put it to you this way. Uh, in the first month that I served as RTE's northern editor, uh, over 20 people were killed. Over 20 people lost their lives in Northern Ireland. Um, 100 kilometres up the road. Uh, of course, RTE... And it was more than losing their lives. Some of them were brutal and savage. I, I vividly, I vividly remember the first murder that I had to go to cover. A 33-year-old chap called Paul Moran with a young family 
who was just, he was a Catholic, uh, he used to, he worked in the Lisburn Hyde Company, which you can actually see from the Belfast train outside Lisburn, and he was going to work early one morning and stopped to get his paper, as he always did, and um, the newsagent's shop in Lisburn was beside a loyalist estate, and somebody ran out and shot him most brutally, and for no other reason that they had uh, ascertained that he was a Catholic who stopped there every morning. And it was the first murder I covered up there, and I remember just thinking, you know, the senselessness of it all. Um, and it was a bit of a jolt for a middle-class boy from Dublin, you know. Did you find it a depressing experience? Um, no. Well, yes, of course, you found individual killings depressing. And, uh, I mean, nothing more depressing than the Oma bomb, which perhaps we might come back and talk about later. Uh, even from 1992 onwards, you sensed that things were going on in the undergrowth in the background, that contacts were being made. I remember um, going up to have lunch with the, uh, the general officer commanding of the British Army in the north in 1992, and myself. And, you know, it all seemed pretty bad at the time. Uh, but he said, you know, even the Hundred Years' War comes to an end. And uh, then he added helpfully, of course, it went on for slightly more than 100 years. But, um, you know, he knew that there was something afoot. Yeah. And very soon, you know, the, the fo- my focus of my work shifted from maybe, you know, coordinating coverage of, of the violence to the political end of things. You know, the, 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 from 1992 uh, to the IRA ceasefire in 1994 was an absolute breakneck uh, period of events, meetings, uh, developments. And then, you know, you'd, of course, the Good Friday Agreement itself in 98 yeah. took another four years. But, you know, it was a very intense political period. And I was a bit like the driver of an express train. You see all these amazing incidents flashing past you, you know. And as as you draw into the station, you scratch your head. Did, did, did I really see all that? You know? Well, it, it was an extraordinary period. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement is and always will be now such a mon- monumental Occasion yeah, in Irish history. It, it, it absolutely was, and um, I mean, it was it was very dramatic because obviously we'd been up on up covering it in Stormont for for months and months and months. A lot of the time, nothing would happen, and you'd be waiting for a statement, and you'd be in the porter cabins outside Stormont, frozen and bored. And then suddenly, as they say, events began to gather pace. George Mitchell said, "There's going to be a deadline, and it's going to be Easter." After that, I'm back to the States. And you knew he meant it. And that forced the pace in a big way. And then, of course, you had the frantic events of the 48 hours before the agreement was signed. People may forget this, but Paisley, who was uh, the DUP, were violently against the agreement. They marched their supporters up to Stormont. They were at the gates. One felt there was going to be a riot. They actually got into the porter cabins where the, the news conferences were held. The late David Irvine came out with his supporters and they began to barrack Paisley. And they shouted Paisley down. And I always remember David Irvine saying, no, he says, no, let the old man speak. And uh, Paisley was defeated that night. And, um, you know, the people that wanted the agreement went on to sign it the following day. But they were amazing, dramatic scenes. A great personal cost to him, for instance. Oh, a great personal cost ultimately to him. But it was, people forget that it was, um, it was snowing and it was Easter. And around that time, on RT, I heard uh, this slow air Easter snow. I think Peter Brown may have played it on one of his programmes. And I remember thinking it was, it was both a, a beautiful but poignant as well. Seamus Ennis, Easter snow. It kind of encapsulated the, the, the joy of the agreement, but it also reflected, it seemed to me, 
all the pain that had gone before, because, of course, the Good Friday Agreement was a bittersweet uh, development for people who'd been bereaved. And, you know, there was a huge, huge social and personal cost that had preceded it. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Easter Snow, Seamus Ennisair, the choice of today's guest, David Davin Power. After that extraordinary time and the pace of, of, of the political job you were covering with the Good Friday Agreement, you came back then to be political correspondent in Dublin. It was a very different pace or a different style of, of coverage of politics, I'd imagine, was it? It was, but I mean, to tell you the truth, uh, what, had hap- what happened after the Good Friday Agreement in, in 1998, um, there was the whole business of it implementing the agreement, uh, this decommissioning, and politics became uh, quite tedious in Northern Ireland. So um, I, I suppose the, 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 the biggest shock to the system before I left would have been the OMA bomb, which of course yeah. it was immediately after the agreement was signed when nobody expected anything like this to happen. I mean, we, we thought all this was in the past. And of course, as we all know, it was just such a, a horrific event. And um, as it happens, I was visiting Chartres Cathedral in, um, yeah, I was on, on the week off in France. And my son rang me and he said, look, you better turn on the radio if you can get the BBC. There's something bad has happened at Oma. I turned on the radio in the car, just about got a crackly long wave signal. And, um, you know, it, at first it didn't sound so bad. I got into the car, I was driving back to Paris and every half hour the bulletins were worse and worse and worse and you knew that this was something really horrific. And um, my job really as Northern Editor was simply to organise the coverage of all those funerals. It was heartbreaking really, you know, at a time when you thought all this was in the past and you know, to see the sight of, you know, young father, bewildered father carrying, physically carrying in his two arms the coffin of the little child, you know, I mean, look, we all shed tears. The journalists are supposed to be hard bitten, but uh, we're flesh and blood too. That and the fact that it, it sort of changed the atmosphere a little bit, uh, and I was happy to uh, to move on. I felt I'd I felt I'd done my done my stint in Northern Ireland. I was from Dublin, and I never envisaged actually making my home in Belfast. So I was I was happy to move back. You covered a lot of different huge stories. As political correspondent, what are the standout ones when you reflect on them now? Uh, the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, the yeah. o- the, 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 the OMA bomb. And, and mo- moving down here, of course, the whole, um, the boom and the bust, because I started in Leinster House in 2001. And, of course, the boom was getting boomier then. Yes, yeah. And it was very, very interesting to see the twists and turns. Uh, well, Fianna Fáil were on the crest of a wave, weren't they, at they that could time? Do yeah, yeah. yeah. Bertie Ahern could walk on water at that stage. One of the things that was very striking was that your, your wage packet seemed to go up every couple of months. You probably remember that in RTE yourself, Des, with various agreements that had been hammered out with the public service unions. So, you know, it was a very comfortable time, but um, nobody could have predicted what was around the corner. And to my mind, the fallout from the, the uh, our economic boom, uh, the, the so-called bust, was probably one of the most fascinating stories I, I've ever covered. I mean, the uh, the implosion of Brian Cowan's government, um, Enda Kenny comes along and, in fairness, steadies the ship. I mean, without being partisan about it, he did. Uh, the country was in turmoil. I mean, one of, one of the standout moments is, is I mean, uh, uh, when Brian Cowan attempted to reshuffle his cabinet after the Greens pulled out. He was ringing people and they wouldn't take cabinet jobs. Uh, so, he led his depleted front bench into the into the doyle the next day, 
And of course, there were ministers with three jobs and all the rest of it. And it was just, it was catastrophic and comical at the same time. Did, we, he, did he carry an unfair burden, do you think? Yeah, I, I'll talk about him in a moment. Yeah. But we came out of the uh, press gallery and the late Brian Lenehan was there, Brian Lenehan Jr., yeah. uh, with a cabal of utterly furious backbenchers and like maybe 20 or 30 who just couldn't believe what they'd just witnessed in the Doyle, the, the humiliation of their, their Taoiseach in having to bring this depleted cabinet into, into the house. And they didn't mind that, that the journalists were staring at them. You know, they were... It was almost as if there was going to be a coup. I think from then on, poor Brian Cowan's uh, fate was sealed. Brian Cowan would be one of, the, one of the people that I admire in politics. He's a thoroughly decent person. Um, he's a patriot. Um, you know, he hasn't been well, of course, obviously. We, we wish him the best. But I think if he had a flaw, it was that he felt that doing what he thought was the right thing was enough. Uh, he disdained the need to actually sell what he was doing to communicate who's a poor communicator maybe he'd never been tested maybe he came to be Taoiseach without ever having had to he you know he had a he had a gilded career he was he was basically uh, shoehorned into the job by uh, uh, Bertie Ahern who told Sean O'Rourke in an interview that uh, he felt that Brian Cowan was the best man to succeed him to the utter fury of all the other potential yeah. contenders so I think that you know um Brian Cowan was, um, he, he simply uh, didn't have the equipment to deal. Would anybody have had the equipment to deal with the, what befell him, you know? Um, I mean, there was, a, a, there was a Roman emperor of whom it was said that um, he was thought capable of governing until he had to govern. And, you know, I often thought that was a bit like uh, Brian Cowan. Before we come to your final musical choice, David, is, is an unfair question to ask you, which politician impressed you most in your career? Well, I, I'd have to say that Seamus Mallon, the late Seamus Mallon, would be would be up there. He got some things wrong, but he was courageous to a degree that I've never seen in any other politician. And physically courageous, it must be said, living where he did, and politically courageous. He, at the end, of course, you know, it was a bittersweet experience for him being Deputy First Minister with David Trimble in a, an administration that didn't really ever gel, to put it mildly. David Trimble, in his own way, paid, paid a price. Like, there would be no Good Friday Agreement were it not for John Hume and David Trimble. John Hume, another another major figure who's ailing at the moment and has been for some time. I remember hearing, just after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, two farmers in a pub in Clare discussing, in terms of great erudition, really, who was the greatest Irishman of the last 200 years. Was it Parnell? Was it uh, Daniel O'Connell? Or was it John Hume? And this is a kind of a, quite a learned discussion yeah. Uh, um, and you know it's it it puts in in context you know the kind of contributions that John Hume has made the impact he made the impact he made yeah, yeah. Uh, as Brian Lenehan Jr. was you know taken from us far too soon another figure that you know you might expect uh, me to, to 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 reference Eamon O'Keeve is a man who you know never really traded on his background uh, is a very uh, thoughtful politician although he can be pretty uh, um, prolix in the way he uh, uh, expresses himself sometimes uh, but he he's a he's a politician of ideas uh, and as i say he's never sought to profit from um, his the background dynasty, yeah. the dynasty martin mcginnis i think you know for all his, his background uh, he was a man who, who dragged the republican movement into a place that uh, a lot of People who had quite literally soldiered with them down the years uh, never expected to find themselves. Your final musical choice, David, is very 
brings it into a whole different world. Uh, it brings it into a whole different world. Uh, you know, my uh, my household is very uh, classical music oriented. My um, my wife, Dervla Collins, is a concert pianist and a vo- vocal coach. With with um, the COVID uh, situation now, our house is full of music because she's teaching from home. Uh, Dervla teaches. She was teaching one singer and coaching one singer in New Zealand on Zoom the other day. So uh, our house is wall to wall classical music, and I love it. And I love opera, but I like ELO as well. And um, bit of a uh, jump. Uh, it's a bit of a jump, uh, but maybe maybe because the household has been so intensively <laughs> classical over the last while, I was very um, uh, very upset uh, to get a refund from Ticketmaster for my ELO tickets for the gig uh, that won't be taking place in um, Triarita in the autumn. So. It made me think of Jeff Lynn, and uh, not that he needs the royalties, but uh, <laughs> Mr. Blue Sky. David Devonpire, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.